Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Hello, everyone. How is your summer to all my friends in San Diego? I hope you all survived the tropical storm. What is even happening? Yikes. And if you're listening live today, you're in for a big treat because we have a sci-fi author on, Scott Overton from Canada. And if you haven't read his books yet, you are in for a big treat. So I'm going to read his bio so you can get to know him. And there are links right on the Blog Talk site if you're listening live or if you're listening later. You can connect with him on his website, also Facebook and Twitter or X and Goodreads and also his Amazon page as well. So Scott has had a long career as a radio morning show host, and his first novel, the mystery thriller Dead Air, was set in the radio world, also shortlisted for a Northern Lit Award in Ontario, Canada. Since then, he has taken the reader to even stranger places, including the human bloodstream in his sci-fi debut, the the Primus Labyrinth. There we go. It is Monday, but my reading is slow. Um, it's a science fiction thriller that reviews compare to Michael Crichton and Dan Brown. Scott's short fiction has been published in many sci-fi magazines and anthologies. Fifteen of his sci-fi short stories have been gathered in the collection Beyond, Stories Beyond Time, Technology, and the Stars. Many more sci-fi novels are on the way. He is a professional member of the Canadian Authors Association and Sci-Fi Canada. Scott's distractions from writing include scuba diving, music, and collector cars. He lives with his wife on a private island in northern Ontario, so we are all sending good vibes that his internet connection holds up. (laughs) And without any further delay, are you there, Scott? I am here, Lisa, and it's great to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I was looking over your latest release, Augment Nation, and it was a little terrifying for me when I read the blurb. But do you want to tell everyone about brain augmentations and what this book is about? Well, right. And and the impetus for the book was really our, our relationships with our smartphones these days because we do give up a lot of privacy and we give up a lot of access to our lives to big corporations with some of these devices, smartphones and, you know, home, smart home things, devices and right. such. So the, the story is that the main character has a brain damage from a car accident when he's 14 and he has this device implanted in his brain that connects to his, well, electrodes connect to his neurons and such. Those kinds of devices uh, have been developed really since the 70s to try to interpret our brain waves and make sense of them to let us control devices or computers. People might know Elon Musk's Neuralink company uh, has been approved by the FDA for human testing just about a month or so ago. And that technology is very much what I describe in the book. So then my main character, as he grows, feeling like an outcast, uh, by the time he's an adult, these devices or similar ones are consumer items. So think of your smartphone on steroids. You know, you don't (laughs) have to touch any buttons to to operate any apps or any touch screens. You just think your way to the Internet or anything else that you need a computer enhancement to do. So we become the AI. Fantastic potential. (laughs) Well, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't get into the AI question in the book so much because I think if you had somebody like Siri or Alexa in your brain augment, it'd be so schizophrenic. <laughs> I, I hope nobody would want to do that. But the idea of thinking your way to you know any kind of um, internet connection or device like that, uh, it's amazing. But it could also be fraught with a lot of peril, potential for evil, you know. So it's a cautionary story. I think in the in the lines of Fahrenheit 451, people know, or even you know 1984, thinking that far back, we have to really deal with this technology before it gets here and decide how we want to handle it. Yes, for sure. And you were when you were talking about that, it made me think of uh, my husband was showing me an article just yesterday about that doctors have recorded, actually done, used AI, I guess, to take a recording of brain waves of people going under for surgery, and they would play another brick in the wall, Pink Floyd while they're while they're going under anesthesia and all of the brain waves are giving off this similar thing and ai put noise to it and you know you can it's very bizarre to think that you could listen to your brain waves but you can almost hear a song for sure i couldn't label it as brick in the wall but the technology is coming along it's a little terrifying well that that's it for sure. And I mean, as I said, you know, people have been able to use more primitive devices. I shouldn't call them that because they are very advanced. The hardware is there to actually pick up these brain waves. There are a number of different processes for doing it. And then really what's advancing now is the algorithms, the software to interpret it. As you're saying, right. you know, right. the brain waves are, giving, are, are being created the electrical processes of our brain and all we need to do once we know how to pick them up with these bits of hardware is interpret them into right. something we can understand and recognize and that's coming along and I think by the 2040s it will be a consumer item that's my prediction wow and do you think that being able to read brain waves what would you use it for is it for telepathy I mean what <laughs> what would you well, read you know, brain waves uh, for when I touch on that if people, if multiple people have them, and you can mm -hmm. connect now with text messaging and voice messaging and phone and stuff like that, why can't you have something somewhat similar to telepathy, thinking wow. right these devices? That's just mm -hmm. one kind of thing. What if you could use something similar to Google Maps or Google Google Street View to let you get around just in your thoughts? Wow. But, the marketing element of it. We know we have pretty invasive marketing now with our smartphones and sure. our devices. Yes. We can, we can mm -hmm. walk by a billboard and it knows we're there or something, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of technology can make that 10 times more. Right, right. Yeah, I, it's always unsettling to me that you can have a conversation with someone you know, like we were talking about Timu the other night, and all of a sudden, both of our Facebook feed ads were for Timu. I'm like, you know, our phones are listening all the time. <laughs> That's so true. And especially if you've got, you know, one of these personal assistants, like a Siri or Alexa or something like that, right. uh, listening, because they are listening to hear you say, hey, Alexa, answer this question for me. They can't not be listening or they wouldn't pick that up. So I don't have, right. I, I'm not, 
I'm not a Luddite or anything like that. I don't have anything against technology, but I am big on privacy as much as I can actually still maintain it. So I never mm-hmm. have Siri activated on my phone or anything like that. I don't have any smart phone, smart home devices or smart TVs. That's just me, but it creeps <laughs> me out. Well, that's why you're writing these these spooky stories about them. <laughs> yes. And and it should, you know, creep people out because the technology is always ahead of the law. And unless mm-hmm. we can get the, you know, legal stuff arranged ahead of the technology, we're going right. to be ca- playing catch up again with this again. And that's not great. So the main character in Augmentation, because he had one implanted since he was 14 and has been getting upgrades in firmware and such, learning all the possible capabilities of it. He's uniquely placed to be able to help people push back against some of the bad stuff when they become a consumer item. So, uh, you know, a kind of reluctant leader of a resistance, if you like. (laughs) Love it. And I was going to ask, what... What inspired this story? What made you go, huh, what if you had that in your brain? <laughs> what was the idea behind it? Well, first, I've always been interested in how the brain works and consciousness and all of those questions of mental uh, activity and such. And then with that, with that and being quite aware of brain-computer interfaces, as they call them, and our smartphone issues and what I was talking about just there about invasiveness and privacy. I thought the two had to go together. You know, really, I like to write books about concepts, strong concepts, strong themes. So as I said in the beginning, this book thematically is intended to make us think about our lives. Now, the the great science fiction may be set in a thousand years from now, but it's really always about now. It's about us. It's about issues that we face and so that's kind of what it is. It came from those areas. I love that. And I this kind of dovetails into I was going to ask you, our, our listeners are always really curious about your writing journey. And I think you've already, we mentioned in your bio that your background is morning radio and all that kind of thing. So how did you make that transition from radio to to being a sci-fi author? How did all that happen? Well, I don't even, even know if you can describe it that way. The thing is that I grew up reading voraciously ever since I was little, and especially science fiction when I got out into my teens. My father was a big fan of it. We would have big discussions around the dinner table about the latest books and different concepts and such. So I always, always wanted to be a science fiction writer. And (laughs) I actually tried to do that when I was much too young and didn't do it very well. But uh, (laughs) then I I found radio was a career that combined a bunch of things that I really liked, music, performing, you know, all these creative aspects of it. And I did enjoy it, but it was a job. It was a paycheck. It was not the passion of being a science fiction writer. So Mm -hmm. as soon as I was able to, I really made the shift. But it wasn't so much a transition. It was just that I finally was able to do it. Okay. And when you when you did, did you um have to join writers groups? Did you take classes? What what did you do so that you could finally see that first book published? 
Well, I did all those things. I don't know if you could say you have to, but I certainly find them useful. I, I believe that no writer can say that they never have to have anything left to learn. You can always right. learn more about your craft and sure. at the very least refresh yourself because all these things come into your head and you kind of try to absorb them and then hope that you'll go into auto mode, automatic <laughs> mode where all these things come out. You can't possibly think about them and each little thing every moment you're writing. But, um, yeah, I did join writers' groups. As I mentioned, the Canadian Authors Association and SF Canada are two of them. And it's, it's good to be able to have a network with other writers who do what you do. And they also provide good educational opportunities. Uh, CAA always had a conference and have not so much lately. COVID was part of that. But they had great educational opportunities, lots of courses and in-person in, uh, seminars and such. And now there are webinars, and those two organizations uh, have webinars about every month through the summer season, and I host those. As a oh, nice. Broadcaster. I think it was a natural choice. Very cool. Well, I wanted to mention that you, because you enjoy all of these sci-fi things, and every time I have a sci-fi writer on, it's always tradition, but for you, is it Star Wars or is it Star Trek? <laughs> I love both, but I have to say I'm on the side that Star Trek is science fiction and Star Wars <laughs> is fantasy. Uh, uh, you know, it's set in space, but but I don't think there's a all little of that more magic. Is, yeah, it's a little bit more. Not that I don't like that idea, and I think that you know um, the idea of the force and using what we might call paranormal abilities now is right. perhaps pseudoscience at best, if not fantasy. I think that there is a possibility it could fall into the realm of science as we learn more. It may just mm -hmm. be an area where we don't know yet. We're always learning more, and we may learn a way to achieve these items, we, these activities we just, that we now consider paranormal. Yeah, we just haven't figured out our midi chlorines or whatever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, first it was just the force, which was a spiritual kind of thing. And then George Lucas decided he had to throw in midichlorians to give a science <laughs> explanation. And I, I don't right. think that added anything to the story. But, <laughs> you weren't a fan of the prequels. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I can't say I was. <laughs> but I have loved them. You know, I have loved the movies and, and such. Yes. Star Trek, I, I mean, I was... I was a teenager when, when it came out originally, and I just loved it at the time. But again, it it is really thoughtful science fiction. It has strong ideas, strong concepts, strong themes, and you can see that in virtually every episode of the original series. Less so in some of the other later series, but still there. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about science fiction and where I tell people, usually TV and movie science fiction is quite different from literary science fiction. Yeah. And I think written science fiction is as valid a literary form as any other genre mm -hmm. and, and maybe more thoughtful than many thought provoking. Well, I, I was lucky enough that I got to meet Ray Bradbury a couple of times before he died and he was so in love with written words, but he loved sci-fi because he, he believed that 
all of the inventions we have, nothing would exist had someone not imagined it first. And so he thought that, you know, writing sci-fi, you are putting the ideas that other people, engineers, will make real someday, right? You have to have that big idea. Isn't that the truth, right? I mean, absolutely mm-hmm. true. And Ray Bradbury is such an incredible writer. I mean, yes. People might know some of his novels, but if you haven't read his short fiction, he is just a superlative short fiction writer, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's brilliant stuff. Yes, for sure. And he manages to give you a futuristic vision, but still make it so relatable that you feel like it's possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, different people have different fish. Uh, visions and definitions of what is science fiction and what is fantasy. And, you know, I try not to be too hard line with that because mm-hmm. there are elements in some of my stories that get more paranormal. My first one, you mentioned the Primus Labyrinth. The Primus Labyrinth is, well, if you ever saw the movie Fantastic Voyage years ago with mm-hmm. Raquel Welch, among others, and they shrink a submersible, shrink a submarine to go through the bloodstream. Well, I'm I love that movie, but a shrink ray, no, the physics won't allow it. But nanotechnology is being created. So in the Primus Labyrinth, I have a nano-submersible, virus-sized, traveling through the bloodstream of a victim who has her bloodstream seeded with biochemical bombs that would create fatal blood clots. It's an extortion plot against the American president. And the tiny submersible is controlled by virtual reality, but the pilot finds reality bending and blurring much, you know, a lot. Mm -hmm. And there are some elements, especially later in the book, that some people have objected to saying it's, you know, more paranormal than science. Well, yes, maybe it seems that way to us now. Yes, exactly. Right. Right. So I I try not to hold too hard a line on, on what is science fiction, what is fantasy, but I do at the same time try to get as much real science in the books mm-hmm. as I possibly can. I do research them as much as I, you know, can possibly right. do to get the science right. And mm-hmm. then sometimes you have to use artistic license and subject a little bit. And right. So well, the, sci- the, the science, thing. as Ray Bradbury said, the science just hasn't caught up with you yet. Your imagination's bigger than the science. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Very, very, very well put. So I, I, I do have that. And augmentation is only a few years in the future. So the science there, I think, is pretty valid. And I don't think I've taken it anywhere that even somebody hardline would uh, would object to there. Pretty, nah, The technology is still very accessible. I want to stress that. People compare a lot of my novels to Michael Crichton. So the idea is high concept, thriller plots, very human stories, but pretty accessible and commercial as far as the the content and writing go. So, I mean, I have another book that came out after the Primus Labyrinth called Naida, which in which a guy finds an ancient alien artifact when he's scuba diving. And there's (laughs) one being alive still in there and it enters his body. So the idea of a symbiotic alien isn't entirely new by any means. It's been used in a lot of things, including Star Trek episodes and Mm -hmm. such Stargate, but this one, I just really wanted to explore what an average, ordinary person would go through if that were to happen to them. What in the world would you do? <laughs> and so I had a lot of fun with that character. Oh, but that again, sounds... you know, yeah, the science 
you can only research science on that so much because it's right. some total unknown territory. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, and I like also the shows that are pushing because I wonder if someday it would be possible. I feel like, nah, it'll never be possible. But those, um, you know, idea, the idea, like I just finished Picard finally and Mm-hmm. His body was dying and they, I think I can do the spoiler because it's been out so long, but his body was dying and so they downloaded his consciousness to put it into, you know, a new Android body so that he can still exist. And that show on Amazon Prime Upload where where when you, you're going to die, you can, if you're rich enough, you can pay to have your consciousness uploaded and then you're like in this computerized heaven thing. And I feel like you know, I know our brains are computers, but how do you feel? Do you think that's going to be possible someday to make your consciousness on a disk drive? (laughs) You know, that's a hard call, really, really hard call, but I have written fiction about that. I have written Mm -hmm. short stories about that, and that concept of, you know, uploading your brain, your mind, your consciousness has been around for quite a long time, but it is it's one of those things that really hard to, it's hard to pin down because no one as much as they may say so in whatever book you want to read really knows how consciousness right. works they mm-hmm. don't know there are some good theories so can you ever actually make a copy of something like that when you don't even really understand how it works it's kind of like star trek's transporters the idea is that they're supposed to capture every molecule, every atom in your body and be able to make a copy of that and beam it somewhere as energy and then, you know, rematerialize it. Well, everything's always moving. Everything, everything at the the smallest level is always in motion. How do you ever take a still shot of that, you know? Right. You can't because the nature of it, the nature of it is partly the motion. And then there's a whole quantum question of, you know, everything's in 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 flux right it's a possibility until the quantum possibilities you know coalesce when you've got an observer observing it it's mind-blowing but can you ever capture that and right that i don't know i don't i don't know but that's what i felt like when fax machines first came out oh my gosh and you were getting pictures out of air from around the world and I thought this is Willy Wonka's Wonka vision right here <laughs> but human beings would be a little bit harder to transfer <laughs> it is amazing technology and you know even though the, the, the details the data that we send routinely across the internet now yeah. day after day after day after day moment by moment it's huge and we those things by coordinates, you know, this pixel mm-hmm. has to go here to make the picture and such and such. But could you ever get something like a human body that's always got every single particle of it in motion all the time? Right. You know, at the at the quantum level. I don't know. And I maybe it's just a matter of time that we could have something that sophisticated, but I never well, I, I can't say never, because I, I said I have done that in fiction, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> generally use that as a device because I'm really not sure when right. I could ever go. And in fact, I, I rarely go very far into the future because 15 years ago, we didn't have smartphones. We had, you know, I, I guess Blackberries and stuff, but not smartphones. 
Right. And imagine how things have changed since that time. Think about how technology and our society has changed. For me to try to project technology. A hundred years, yeah. Right. I can't do it. I can't do it. So although some of them we get we get so wrong, like where is my flying car, Jetsons? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No flying cars yet. What is going on? Right. But you know, with three D printers, you can do almost like the Jetsons little push a button and your food comes out because those three D printers now can make Oreo cookies and stuff. So that's true. That's true. But but thinking of you know how science fiction, science fiction writers try to project the future and and i think about star trek and they're still operating buttons and they're still operating mm-hmm. sliders and you know it's like right. really our brains will control everything we want to do directly with our minds by that point it just would look like garbage it wouldn't be anything visual they could put on tv <laughs> right know? right that's true so. <laughs> be very hard to to put that into a film medium if everyone's just standing around thinking <laughs> yes yes so i sometimes cheat and i have a kind of a reset in society if i want to go that far in the future where technology gets stalled for one reason or another and you know and then i can oh, do it then i can yeah <laughs> <then> i can <laughs> manage it uh, so what is next for you? What's coming out that people can look for? I do have another book called Indigent Earth. Indigent meaning kind of homeless, you know, without a place, without a, without a home. And Indigent Earth postulates that the one percenters have abandoned a damaged Earth to climate change, pollution and such, gone to live in space colonies, promised to come back in 500 years to see whoever is left, and this story is said at the time that they decide to come back. It's much about colonialism, really, oh, because mm-hmm. this time the rich and powerful are the colonists coming back to an earth that has become pretty much, as I say, stalled and uh, primitive. So I have a character from Earth and I have a character from the colonies and a male and female and when they clash, boy, it's fire and water. Like you can imagine, <laughs> they are pretty different. So I'm looking forward to that before I think the end of September we'll be able to get oh, that yay. All right. Mm-hmm. So everyone will have to keep their eye out for that. Is that one going to have a little romantic subplot, having a male and female Sub- enemies to lovers kind sub-plot. of thing? Oh, that's a major <laughs> plot. Oh, good. Every, every, book that I, every book that I write really has a, a romance plot. I love love stories myself. My most romantic one is called Dispossession of Dylan Knox where a woman runs into her high school flame on the very first page and he doesn't remember her. And she oh. knows something's wrong. And when she spends time with him, she realizes he has like totally different people almost from hour to hour. Who's in there? Why is she falling for him again? Who is she falling for? And what's the agenda? So that's, that's oh. a strong romance, mystery, science fiction thriller. It becomes a geopolitical thriller too, The Dispossession of Dylan Knox meaning Dylan Knox, the original person, has been dispossessed from his body. So, yeah, I mean, wow. I like that kind of thing, and I like romance elements. And this one, Indigent Earth coming out, is definitely the following model. Are they attracted to each other? How can they possibly be? But, you know, <laughs> there's that. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Will it be available everywhere, or is it Amazon only, or how are you discussing oh, no. that? 
Yeah, I, I distribute things everywhere. You'd be able to order them, and I always make sure they're published in paperback. And nowadays, I, I generally publish a hardcover version. Not so quick on the audiobooks, even though I was a radio broadcaster and do narrate <laughs> audiobooks for other people for money. Oh, nice. uh, so much work, I, I'm a little bit behind on that. <laughs> so we'll see how long it takes to get the audiobook out. But ebooks and uh, print books will definitely be available everywhere that books are sold. They might not be stocked in your favorite bookstore, but uh, you'll be able to order them. And my website has all the details about all the books always, um, sample chapters, book trailers, uh, even an e-book store, although it requires a little more work than just buying it on your Kindle, you know. Right, right. And uh, I did put a link to Scott's website right there on the Blog Talk site. It's scottoverton.ca, and you can click that and also sign up for his newsletter so that you don't miss when Indigent Earth is coming out. And how else can readers connect with you when they get excited after they read your book? <laughs> well, I do have a Facebook author page. I am on Twitter slash X, I'm not as active of course, I do have an Amazon page and a number of different other places like that. But simply, you know, my website is always the good place to start because it has the links to all those things. And it does connect to my Twitter feed and such. So it's a good place to do that. I don't have a podcast. I don't really blog all that much. Um, but, you know, like I said, if you want to find out about what I'm doing, it'll be eventually on the website as soon as I can get around to it. <laughs> Yes, I have a I have a very um blog that just kind of happens when something new happens, so <laughs> I understand. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I blogs were big. I think they're less attractive yeah. now to people. They like yeah. podcasts. Right. But that's that's again a lot of work that would take me away from my writing, so I haven't gone that direction. Right. Well, I'm so glad that you could be here today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And everybody, run out and grab Augment Nation and be on the lookout for Indigent Earth. It sounds fantastic. I appreciate it so much that you've had me on. It's been a great conversation, Lisa. Thanks, Thanks so for much. joining us on Book Life. Thank you. Be sure you to later. connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.